If you will, open your Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, Psalm 149, that we'll be looking at this morning for a few minutes. Psalm 149. Not sure what your practice is here, so I'm going to ask you to stand, and if you're not supposed to at this point, you just kind of attribute that to my ignorance of your practice. Let's stand as we hear God's word coming to us from this psalm. Psalm 149, this is the word of the Lord. Praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker, let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For Yahweh takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise Yahweh. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God and Father, give now to us, your people, Bless your servants, eyes to see your glory, ears to hear your words of truth, and hearts to receive and believe your word of promise and instruction. Sanctify us by means of your truth, we pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I bring you greetings from Reformation OPC and Mason Apache Junction. We uh, are very thankful to the Lord for all of you. Uh, Our association has been a blessing to us over several years Uh, I am deeply thankful to the brothers especially that I get to meet with from this congregation on Friday mornings. Uh, It's a blessing to meet with them and open God's word together. They've been a great encouragement to me and to my heart. And I am so deeply thankful uh, for your pastor. I cannot say how much I do appreciate and admire him. Uh, His uh, friendship with him has been a joy to me. Uh, he and his family have been in my prayers, obviously, the last couple of days, and I, as I know, you've been praying for them as well. I know that you love and respect your pastor, but let me encourage you to increase and abound in that grace, because he is certainly worthy of it. Uh, thank God that he provides such a faithful man uh, to serve you uh, day to day. I want to take you to Psalm 149 today and speak with you about the war of worship Uh, It doesn't seem like a very fitting Mother's Day theme. I didn't choose this particular war psalm because motherhood is a type of warfare, though no doubt that's also true. Um, All of the mothers with small children can probably say amen. Yes, it's a type of warfare. But actually, I want us to think a little bit about what worship is and what it is that we are engaged in as we worship. If we're thinking biblically about worship, whether in our private worship day by day uh, and family worship in our homes or in the corporate worship of the saints as we are gathered together on this Lord's Day. Worship in all of these cases is a type of warfare. And what we would say more specifically is that biblical worship is an exercise of spiritual warfare against the wicked powers that oppose the church in the present age. The struggle between light and dark is a worship war. It is a war that seeks to answer the question whether we will worship the God of heaven or the creation that he has made. And so what I want to do is use this psalm to introduce a theme that is pervasive in Scripture. I'm not going to just expound the entirety of the psalm today. In fact, I'm going to have you turn the page several times. We're going to look at other references. I want you to recognize this theme of liturgical Warfare, the war of worship, so that as you then go forward from today and read your Bible and study the words of Scripture, you will be equipped to recognize this, for you will often meet it. When we think about worship wars, we're usually thinking about the style of worship. Are we going to have a piano and a flute and sing psalms and traditional hymns, or are we going to have a praise band with contemporary choruses? Is the pastor going to wear skinny jeans and prominently display his tattoos? Or is he going to wear a jacket and tie or a robe in the case uh, in Apache Junction? 
Will the service be casual, and by that I mean choreographed to seem spontaneous, which is the way that it's typically done, or is it going to be explicitly liturgical and formal as we are more accustomed to? Now, some of these issues do matter insofar as they reveal concepts about God and about worship and about the church, But I want to suggest to you today that these kinds of questions that normally are at issue when we talk about worship wars, these are the most superficial aspects of our worship. And the fact that when churches talk about worship, they're often preoccupied with those kind of questions, it suggests that perhaps we don't really understand what worship is. Psalm 149 is a call to exuberant worship in the presence of God. It's offered by people who know who they are, where they are, and how great the God they serve truly is. This psalm is God-centered. It's offered in His presence. And it is given to God as the one who will execute vengeance on the nations. As you read the psalm, you'll notice that the people who offer it are humble. They're made beautiful by God's grace. Not by the adoption of a worldly standard of what is fashionable or good. They look rather to the righteousness of another, even our Lord and Savior. They know that they belong to the kingdom of God, which will outlast and overcome all the nations of the present world. And they are singing judgment against their foes. They are praising God, especially in the latter third of the psalm. They are praising God for the promise of the justice that he will bring. They are not simply going through the motions. This is not an empty ritual. They are singing with joyful and sincere hearts. But it's also not lighthearted. They're not thinking about this in a casual way. They know that God will save his people through judgment. And they are singing of what that will mean for the rest of the world. And once that is properly understood, many practices of contemporary worship will seem to us, rightly I think, a little bit shallow and inappropriate, and maybe at times even irreverent. You don't get the sense that you are in the presence of the world's judge and punisher when you are singing a song that makes Jesus sound like your girlfriend. You would be hard-pressed to find the fear and trembling that is associated with worship in God's presence in many churches today. We, in fact, we don't want people to fear and tremble. We want them to feel welcome. We want them to feel comfortable. We want them to come back next Sunday And songs like Psalm 149 might make them feel a little bit more timid about that. Not only is the context of worship very different today, the content of it also is. How many of our contemporary praise songs have the theological range that we find in the Psalms? This is one of the things, by the way, I love about Reformed worship, is that we can sing recently written, theologically rich and substantive hymns, as we just did this morning, alongside psalms, that God's people have been singing for 3,000 years. That's a beautiful pairing. But admittedly, many of the songs that you find in churches today do, do not contain the same themes that our own worship might. How many songs of lamentation or imprecatory cries for justice do you find in the modern catalog of hymnody? These are major categories of the church's historic praise that entirely disappeared from Christian worship or largely disappeared when the church abandoned the use of the Psalter in her Lord's Day worship. And here I think it's important that we underline the fact this is why we maintain the presence of both hymns as well as psalms even as we have today. Now, I want you to see the parallelism of this psalm just very briefly as we're introducing this theme. Notice, for example, verse 6 of our text. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. This is in the throats of the saints. And two-edged swords in their hands. This is not saying that they are singing as they go to slay the wicked. Rather, it says that by their singing, they are slaying the wicked. This is an example of parallelism, which is the structure of Hebrew poetry and psalmody. And this is synonymous parallelism. In other words, to have a song of praise in their mouth is the same thing as saying they have a two-edged sword of vengeance in their hands. And what does that imply? It implies that the praises of God's people and the sung prayers of God's people is a type of warfare. It's a type of worship war conducted against the ungodly. It's part of how we are participating in the spiritual struggle in which our Lord and Savior has won and will finally consummately 
overcome. So what I want to do is walk through several passages of Scripture that bring to light this theme and help you to see that it is, in fact, an organizing principle for all of the church's worship in all places. Let me me remind you, first of all, of a story that you know, and so we won't even bother turning and reading it today. In Joshua chapter 6, the children of Israel come into the land of Canaan. And God had originally, a generation before, you'll remember, brought them to the southern border of Canaan, to Kadesh. And there the spies had entered the land for 40 days. They came back and brought an unbelieving report. And because the people were determined to return to Egypt, God sentenced that first generation of the Exodus to death in the wilderness. Well, when the second generation comes now to inherit the land of promise, God doesn't take them to the southern border again. He takes them around through Edom and around Moab and to the eastern side of the Jordan River, directly across from Jericho. And why is that significant? It was significant because Jericho was the strongest and most heavily fortified city in the entire land of Canaan at that time. The text is very clear. God puts them into the lion's den at the beginning of the campaign to conquer the promised land. He doesn't give them any warm-up rounds. He doesn't give them any soft targets. He leads them to Jericho, a city that they were completely ill-equipped to fight against and had no hope from a military standpoint of being able to overcome. And then the Lord gives them their military strategy. He says, I want you to march around the city once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And at the end of that seventh circuit, Joshua says, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And the people shout and the trumpets are blown, and praise is sung, and the walls of Jericho fell down. Now, what are you going to do with that? You could offer some kind of naturalistic explanation. You could say, the Lord knew that the pitch and tenor of their voices would create stress fractures in the walls of Jericho that would cause the city to collapse, right? Maybe this is a problem with the architecture of the city. No, this isn't a military strategy. Okay, you, you, could, you could do this as long as you care to around any walled place. It's not, it's not going to work that way. This doesn't work. God knocked those walls down. What is the Lord teaching the people? He's teaching the people from the very first battle, you're not going to win any of these battles. I am. You won't have to fight Success does not depend upon your wisdom, your strength, your armament, or your strategy. Your success depends upon crying out to me. Now look at our text again. Psalm 149, verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written, this is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. This is what happens at Jericho. God says, I want you to go out and I want you to have a prayer meeting around the walls. I want you to walk around the walls and meditate upon the promise that I have given you this city and the land. And then I want you to shout and shout with confidence, cry out with some prayer, God has given us what he promised he would. And then he does. And he continues to do even to this day. The people of God shout and the walls come tumbling down. Now, with that in mind, turn back in your Old Testaments to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. A little bit earlier from the Psalter where we are, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I want to read with you what will seem like an extensive reading, but hopefully you'll see the purpose of it. It'll be good for you to follow along if you're able. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from Yahweh. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek Yahweh. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh before the new court and said, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, Are you not God in heaven? 
You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you." Meanwhile, all Judah stood before Yahweh with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeiel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says Yahweh to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of Yahweh on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and Yahweh will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in Yahweh your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to Yahweh and praise him in holy attire. And as they went before the army and say, give thanks to Yahweh for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, Yahweh set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. So the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount, uh, excuse me, so the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction, and when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Thus far God's word. Now what happens there? I realize that's a long story, but it's a great story. It's a story that you need to know, your children need to know, your grandchildren need to know. This impossible multitude comes against Jehoshaphat and the people of Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat is afraid, rightly so. He's a smart guy. He knows that he can't win the fight that is ahead of him. He comes to the Lord and says, our eyes are upon you. And the Lord sends a prophet to encourage the king and the people. And then they begin to make military preparations. And what do they do? Well, they get mortar men to get up in front, right, to go ahead and try and cut down the size of the enemy army. And then they've got archers behind the mortar men to try and take down the... No, they don't do any of those things. They don't put special forces, soldiers in flanking positions to be able to pick off the enemy from the... No, what they do is they put in front the choir. They put the singers. Because what are the singers singing? They're singing words of praise and prayer They are speaking words of war against their enemies. And what does the Lord do? He takes the enemy's swords and spears and bows and turns them against one another. This is the promise of Scripture. The wicked will fall into the pit that they have dug for the righteous. Their arrows will become boomerangs. And so they did. God fought for the people because they sang. And we could see this again and again and again in the Old Testament. We could see a similar case when Assyria comes against Jerusalem in the days of good King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord and spreads out the threatening letter of Sennacherib before the Lord and says, Lord, look at this. We can't do anything about this. Our eyes are upon you. And as the people sang and as the people prayed, Assyria was defeated. But how were they defeated? Not by military strength. Not by military cunning, but rather by sung prayer. 
the king of Israel prayed and God carpet bombed the enemy. Now we turn over to the New Testament. Let me show you that this theme continues. Again, we are omitting vast swaths of material that reinforce this idea. I'm just going to give you a taste to hopefully convince you to look for it yourself. But in Acts chapter 4, we must see this in connection to our subject today. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. Acts chapter 4 Beginning at verse 18, you will remember that Peter and John, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, have been arrested by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They are being threatened. The Jewish leaders are trying to tamp down this growing Nazarene movement. Followers of Jesus are multiplying, and they will continue to do so. The more they are persecuted, the more they will prosper. Notice verse 18, beginning... So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the hand of, uh, uh, through the name rather of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You got the scene? Peter and John are detained They are threatened. They are sent back to the congregation. They gather together with the brethren. They say, this is what the chief priests and the elders said. What are we going to do? They said, I know what to do. Let's pray Psalm 2. That's the portion of scripture that is in that passage. Psalm 2. We're going to pray Psalm 2 because that's what the Psalms are. They are sung prayers. It's a prayer book and a hymn book because a prayer book and a hymn book are the same thing. And we're going to sing together these words about King Jesus and his authority and his power over all the nations. And how does God respond? He shakes the place where they are meeting. Reminding them that he is the God who shakes all of the nations of this world so that only one unshakable kingdom will remain. You see the imagery? They sing. They pray. And God gives them strength. I love the fact that they don't pray for protection. They don't pray, oh Lord, keep keep the chief priests from harming us. They pray, God, give us boldness. And God gave them boldness indeed. The meeting place shook. God rattled the walls. Once again, the walls of the city of man were about to fall. It's a repetition of what you saw at Jericho and what you see over and over and over throughout redemptive history. Similarly, In Acts chapter 16, you know the story. Uh, Paul and Silas are preaching in the city of Philippi. And there is a demonized young woman who is used. She's a slave. She's used by her masters as a fortune teller. She is following them around. And she is saying, these are the men that are preaching to us about the true God. Paul is a little annoyed by this, Luke tells us. And finally turns around and casts the demon out. For which he and Silas are arrested, beaten and then placed in stocks in the prison. About midnight, Luke tells us, they were praying and singing hymns. What would you expect to happen next? God sent an earthquake. The walls of the prison began to shake, the doors were opened, the chains were unlocked, and the nations were overthrown by the gospel of grace. In fact, the the jailer and his family that night 
are saved. The entire book of Revelation is simply an exposition of this theme from the earliest vision, the earliest images in that vision to the final chapters of the book. The church is singing prayer to God as God makes war against the nations. They sing and pray for God to judge the wicked and those songs and prayers are received by God and answered with heaven's fire, noises, thunder, lightning, and earthquake. Every time in the Bible that the church prays, the city of man and its walls begin to crumble and fall. Now, I have in my notes many illustrations from church history since the close of the canon of the same idea. I'll leave it to you to explore that on your own. But let me simply underline the main point and then offer some applications. The church is called in Scripture to make war on the world. The church prays for the walls of the wicked to fall. The church seeks the blessing and protection of God in the face of certain disaster. And all of this happens every time we sing and pray. Worship is warfare against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Worship is a powerful weapon. It is a military strategy against the forces of darkness in this world. We do battle in and by worship. And that means worship is not entertainment. Worship is not therapy. Worship is combat. It is how the church conquers all of her foes. I think some of the ways that we talk about worship today would be absolutely incomprehensible to the apostles and prophets. We, we come home from church on Sunday and mom or dad who stayed home with the, the sick kid says, how was worship or how was church today? And I think the apostles and prophets would look at us and just scratch their heads and say, what in the world do you mean? What in the world do you mean? Now we know what we mean. Right? Did it go well? Right? Did that strange Presbyterian pastor wear that bow tie again? It's just absurd. Right? Those are the kinds of things we mean. But do you, do you see what worship is? What we're actually doing here? We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to recharge our batteries and make, make each other feel better about ourselves. We're here to conduct war. We're here to cry out to God against this impossible army that's arrayed against the church. And we are praying to the God who has promised, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's the walls of the city of man that will fall. The walls of the city of God never will. Now since the Psalms have been the primary hymns and prayers of God's people for the last 3,000 years, it's not surprising that liturgical warfare is primarily, although not exclusively, conducted through singing and praying the Psalter. Not every example of this in Scripture uh, explicitly identifies the fact that these biblical characters were singing the Psalms, but in several, of ca- in several of the cases we see that they are singing the Psalms, and in several other cases it's implied that they were. For example, when, when Paul and Silas are there in the Philippian jail and they are praying and singing hymns to God, what hymns do you suppose they were singing? I suspect it was not Jesus is a friend of mine, which is not in our hymnal, rightly so. I suspect it might have been something more along the lines of Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Can you imagine? Paul and Silas singing and praying Psalm 18, and then the walls of the prison begin to shake. Maybe it's only a coincidence, but those lines are exactly what happened in the jail that night. They cried out in distress, and the earth shook with God's anger. Now, the church is commanded, in fact, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in the New Testament. And you might say it's proper to sing uh, uninspired hymns as well. And of course, we do in our congregation, you do in yours as well. But what I want you to see is that while those uninspired hymns can be rich, wonderful, encouraging, helpful ways of expressing the same sung prayer theme, what I want you to see is that singing the Psalms is mandatory. We don't get to decide whether we will or we won't. It's a required part of our worship. And not only that, The two passages in the New Testament that speak of singing psalms, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, neither of them are about corporate worship on the Lord's Day. 
Now, it's appropriate to apply the principle in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, sure, but it just simply commands the church to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I don't know what your daily devotional life looks like. I don't know if you have a daily time of prayer, and if you do, I hope you do. I don't know exactly what that might consist of. I don't know if you sing in family worship. If you don't, I hope that you might think about doing so. But what I want to suggest to you is that the psalms should have some role in those times of prayer and song. If we're singing the psalms, it won't be long before we begin running into psalms that are quite militaristic and that tend to make Christians a little bit uncomfortable. But remember that the church on earth is traditionally referred to as the church militant because we are still on the battlefield. We are still in conflict. And these psalms both remind and equip us for war. There are dozens of examples of this in the Psalter. For example, if if you go back to the Psalter for just a minute, we were in Psalm 149. Go back to Psalm 144 for just a minute, just a, a page or two back, and listen to what David says here. He says in verse 9, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten-stringed harp. I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. What's the context of our singing there? It's God's judgment. It's God's justice. It's God's deliverance. Go back to the beginning of the psalm. Where did this all start? Blessed be Yahweh, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. How do you tra- like is he poking people really hard? Is this some kind of a special technique like the touch of death? No, think about David for a second. He he's a he plays a harp. He uses his fingers to play music as he sings prayer to God. But how does David understand what's going on there? His hands playing that harp playing that music as he sings prayer to God, are trained for warfare. Because that's what that kind of sung prayer is. Go back a little earlier in the Psalter to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 for just a minute. Notice verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 68. Oh, this psalm has such an important history in our Reformed tradition, but you'll have to ask your pastor about that. I don't have time to talk to you about it today. Psalm 68, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh, exult before him. Skip down to verse 17 of the text. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that Yahweh God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to Yahweh the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. Yahweh, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of their peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Do you see how interwoven 
is the sung prayer of the church and the warfare of God against the wicked, against the nations. Do you see how closely interwoven this is? Let me tell you just one story. Our Reformed fathers uh, in Europe sang Psalm 68 publicly both prior to and immediately after the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in which Roman Catholic rulers in the period of the Reformation ordered Calvinistic leaders uh, to be assassinated. And that sparked a wave of kind of anti-Calvinistic violence in which it is estimated that between 5,000 and 30,000 Protestants were killed, including 3,000 in Paris alone. Now, you might say, but Pastor, obviously that's not our context today, right? I mean, here, here we are meeting in a public place. There's a sign out front. We're easy to find. Uh, nobody is storming into this room and trying to put us to death. But do you understand that right now Christians in China and North Africa are in prison? Do you understand that uh, our brethren in both of those countries, Christians have been executed inside the last several months? Uh, churches in China have been raided and sacked. Missionaries in some parts of the world are regularly risking their lives to carry the gospel into closed countries where it's illegal for them to minister. If you think it is easy to get along in the world as a Christian, if you think that everything will be just fine if you mind your own business and obey what the government tells you to do, then you're demonstrating a lack of historical awareness and a lack of global awareness and a lack of familiarity with the Psalter because that was not how the Psalms would teach you to think. Persecution and adversity is not limited to violent episodes like these. We've seen this in the last couple of years, haven't we? In other places, civil authorities have closed churches. Some of you are very familiar with this, right? You may have family, friends in these churches. In Edmonton, they literally fenced off and confiscated a church building in the name of public health. And when that happened, Christians on Twitter mocked that congregation. Mocked them. And blamed them for losing their property by failing to abide by public health guidelines. Lord, have mercy on us. You might disagree with a congregation's decision to assemble at full capacity and sing without masks. You might say, well, maybe they shouldn't have done those things. But mocking God-fearing believers who are motivated by conviction and conscience says a lot more about the scoffer than it does about the saint who isn't wearing a mask. What about our own country and context? Since Roe v. Wade, In 1973, our government has sanctioned the slaughter of approximately 62 million unborn children. I keep preaching about that number, and every time I preach about it, I have to update that number. Isn't that sad? Because that's the rate at which we are slaughtering babies. That is more than 10 times the number of Jews that are usually cited as having been murdered by the Third Reich. And despite this... Many Christians are uncomfortable when they come to these militaristic psalms. They say, oh, pastor, I'm not sure if we should be singing about the God of vengeance, right? I mean, shouldn't we be singing about the God of love? Well, of course we should. The Bible teaches us to sing about the God of love, who is also, by the way, the God of vengeance. Thank God that he is. Vengeance belongs to him, and we leave it in his hands Oh, pastor, I don't know if we should be singing these psalms that talk about the righteous bathing their feet in the blood of the wicked. Do you have any sense of who you are, where you are, or what the experience of God's people has been historically or is still globally? Now, I'm not suggesting that things like abortion is the primary thing we ought to be thinking about when we sing and pray those psalms. It's just one illustration of many things we might think about. I would even go so far as to say that abortion, as great and evil as it is, is probably not the worst evil against which we ought to pray. But it baffles me that we can read of churches shuttered and Christians murdered and innocent people abused and tortured and unborn children torn apart inside the womb and vacuumed out, and that we can still be squeamish about praying for the God of justice to bring righteous judgment on the world. It doesn't seem to me like these things go together. If we're paying attention, we might need instead to balance our perspective and remind some of our brothers and sisters we don't only need to sing those kinds of psalms, we also need to sing psalms and hymns about God's love and goodness. The church on earth is and must be the church militant. That's what we're learning in these passages. That's what we're seeing in these psalms. The saints are at war, but many well-believing 
well-meaning believers, rather, misunderstand the nature of that war. They misunderstand who the enemy is. They misunderstand how they ought to fight. Because this war is not between liberals and conservatives. It's not a war with actors and agents in the culture war. The battle involves some of these individuals, and it certainly includes those that are corrupting the church and contaminating the world and seeking an ungodly level of control. But those are only the visible signs of an invisible conflict. We need to know who the enemy is. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And what does he do in Ephesians 6? He begins describing the Christian's armor. And usually commentators and preachers, when they're working through that passage, they'll, they'll note the analogy, the similarity between that Christian armor and a Roman soldier's armor. And there are some comparisons that can be drawn. But a smaller number of commentators have pointed out that that armor also sounds an awful lot like the garb of the high priest in the Old Testament. And that's, in fact, how we are armed. What is the belt around our body? It is truth. What is our breastplate? It is righteousness. Not ours. It's a righteousness outside ourselves. That's why we have to buckle it on. What is on our feet? The preparation of the gospel of peace. What protects us from the assaults of our enemy? It's the shield of faith. What covers our head? It's the helmet of salvation. What is our sword? It's the word of God. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, at the very end of this description, Paul tells us how the battle is to be fought. And what does he say? He says, praying always in the Spirit with perseverance for all the saints. Did you realize that when you are singing psalms and hymns, when you're worshiping as we have today, when you are praying day by day, you're not just praying about your life and the things that are troubling you. You're not just praying about your kids You're not just praying about your grandkids. You are praying for your brothers and sisters all over the world. You are praying in the Spirit with perseverance for all the saints. And by those prayers, you are waging war. We must not mistake the nature of this war or the means by which it is to be fought. Right now, we are watching our society becoming increasingly angry and hateful and violent And to some extent, that's been true on the right and the left. And we need to learn to say, lo ami, these are not my people. (laughs) those, Those are not my people. That's not the battle that I'm fighting. No, the battle I'm fighting is defined in Scripture. We may have common concerns with many of those who are engaged in the current culture war, but we also need to recognize that we belong to a different society and are fighting at a whole different level. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We don't need more angry Christians, especially not on social media. We need more Christians who understand the times and who are committed to fighting the battle in the right way. And please don't misunderstand. The brothers and sisters at Reformation would tell you, I am not telling you to withdraw. No, it it doesn't mean being passive at all. No, take dominion. Be engaged. Go forth and be salt and light and leaven knowing that the kingdoms of this world have become and are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But recognize that you can't solve spiritual problems with political solutions. Recognize that the fight is fundamentally not going to be won in the Supreme Court or at the ballot box. Its outcome does not depend on decisions about masks or vaccines or gun control or systemic racism. The war can only be won and has been won by Christ. He crushed the head of the serpent in his death and resurrection. And scripture now promises, Romans 16 verse 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. God's word is our weapon. 
And preaching it overcomes lies and changes hearts and saves sinners and equips and empowers the saints. And praying that same word, as we do in the Psalms, breaks down the walls of the city of man and causes demons to tremble. The world will be changed, and it will be changed fundamentally by the gospel. Christ's church will persevere and and prevail. But what you're seeing right now, to some extent, is a winnowing and judgment of the visible church. Because after all, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Some sectors of the visible church deny that we are even at war. And that is because they've made peace with the world and will eventually become part of the world. Others recognize that we are in a life and death struggle, but they're fighting in anger rather than in faith. One of my favorite authors is G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton explained long ago that some men fight because they hate what is in front of them. And other men fight because they love what is behind them. And that is the kind of fighting that we're called to do in Christ. The Christian does not hate in the same way that many soldiers might. We fight because we love. And we fight by prayer and song in worship. It does not seem to me to be a coincidence that Stephen, as he is being stoned, prays that the Lord would not hold that sin against those who were killing him. And the answer to that prayer is in Acts chapter 9, when the Jew who oversaw Stephen's murder bows the knee and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Those two activities are not as different as you might imagine. Every day you are going to find yourself in the Psalms. In our congregation, we encourage people to structure their daily prayer around the Psalter. And and we suggest that if you sing or pray or recite three to five Psalms a day, you will find somewhere in at least one of them exactly where you are on that day. Whether you're suffering or cheerful or cheerfully suffering, the Psalms are going to meet you there, and they are going to help you there know how you ought to speak to God. You are a priest. This is one of the things that we find precious in the Reformed tradition. The Reformation, in part, was about a recovery of the priesthood of the believer. We're made priests by God in Christ. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We're called to offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and prayer daily in God's holy temple. And how do we do that? We do that by sung prayer to God. And yet again... Many Christians, it's unfamiliar to them. They don't know what to do with the Psalms. and They don't know how, perhaps, they ought to use them in these ways. Just like Paul and Silas imprisoned in Philippi, the church on earth is to fight injustice and endure suffering and advance God's kingdom in many ways, but preeminently through sung prayer. And so we cry to God in the present distress, and we expect that God will shake the earth in anger as he hears his children's pleas. The Psalms have been called the war chants of the Prince of Peace. We make war by worship and not with worldly weapons. If we build our lives around prayer and worship and the people of God, if we structure that life of prayer around the Psalms, then we won't become bitter and angry or despairing. Instead, we will have a cheerful militancy We'll have a happy and hopeful outlook as we contend against the forces of darkness in this world. We'll remember that the battle is the Lord's and the victory is His, and it is not up to us to win it or not. In fact, we'll know that the outcome is not in doubt. We may experience hard times. We may not live to see the glorious nature of whatever God intends to do next, but we will see the final glory of Christ's consummated kingdom, and that is enough to sustain us. So let me make a few recommendations. First, recognize that you are at war, but recognize that it is a spiritual war and not just a political one. Second, understand that in Christ you are a warrior priest and you are called to engage the enemy and fight for God's kingdom by offering daily sacrifices of prayer and thanksgiving and intercession. Third, pray like a priest who is engaged in war. Don't just pray about the project that you've got going on at work. Don't just pray about the health of your children. Don't just pray for your aging parent. Don't just pray for your local church. Pray for all of those things, please. But don't just pray for that. Pray against the darkness. 
pray against the demonic. Pray for the Lord's church in all places. Pray for the salvation of the world through the judgment of those who are destroying it. And fourth, pray the Psalms. Pray all of them. Pray them regularly. Pray them repeatedly. And I'm not meaning to bind your conscience in suggesting that. That's simply why God gave us the book to begin with. Use it in the way it was meant to be used. And recognize that as you pray, as you read, as you sing, you are praying in the Spirit and with perseverance for all of God's saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we recognize that we, even now, are assembled together in heavenly places. We marvel, O God, at the privilege that is ours in Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that you have ushered us into that holy place by means of his blood, have clothed us in his righteousness, have filled us by your Spirit, so that we who are unworthy in ourselves might do what is almost unimaginable, Address the maker and judge of all the earth. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and for what you have done and for all that you have promised yet to do for your people. We pray, O God, that you would bless and sustain your church in all places where she is found. Make your people beautiful by your love and more and more holy like your Son. Strengthen us against darkness. Help us to be salt and light and leaven in this world. Manifest your glory. Cause your will to be done on earth and in this church and in each of our hearts and lives, even as it is done in heaven. This we pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.